This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, my name is Jesse Faust, and I'm a host with the New Books Network podcast. And I'm here with Dr. Orasanmi Burton, professor of anthropology at American University, to talk about his new book, Tip of the Spear Black Radicalism, Prison Repression, and the Long Attica Revolt. Hi, Dr. Burton. Welcome. Um, how are you this morning? Hello, I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Excellent. So before we get into the book, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey to get where you are now? Sure. Um, I have a background in in youth organizing. Um, and, you know, the topic of the book is, is on the prison movement. And I was politicized around the question of prisons uh, in in college, really. Uh, and after after leaving college, I went to Hampshire College in Western Massachusetts. I moved to New York and uh, pursued uh, my passion for youth organizing and education, and, and was working with uh, several groups of young people in Harlem. And at the same time, I pursued a, a master's degree in library and information science. And my thinking there was just around, you know, how to collect and preserve knowledge in ways that uh, facilitate the transmission of that knowledge to to younger generations. Um, And so I did some work there around, you know, helping to develop a community-based library and doing some community archival projects. And then at a certain point, it just became clear that I, I needed some time to think more deeply and, and dig more deeply and pursue you know, our theoretical and empirical questions that that had been sort of raised through my organizing work and um, wanted a new challenge to, to work in a long-term way on, on, on research. And so I pursued a PhD in anthropology uh, at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Um, and... Um, received a, a, a great deal of mentorship there, and it sort of opened up the long-term protracted process that has now 
uh, resulted in the, the publication of this book. Excellent. Thank you. Um, so let's let's begin with the title of the book, um, Tip of the Spear. So can you talk a little bit about the title and what the meaning is and where that came from? Sure. Um, let me answer that question by way of another uh, point about uh, methodology, uh, which will then, I think, lead naturally into um, where the title comes from. Um, you know, the book really started, you know, I mentioned that I was working with a youth development organization. And in, in one of these contexts, it, it was a group called the Prison Moratorium Project in New York. Um, and the goal of that project was to slow the growth of prisons in the U.S. To, and specifically in New York, to stop New York from building so many prisons and to use that money um, to enhance, you know, uh, public good, public services. And that organization was founded by someone named Eddie Ellis, who uh, was imprisoned. He was a former Black Panther and spent decades in prison. And so I learned from Eddie while I was working at the organization, but when it came time to do my dissertation, he was one of the first people that I interviewed. And in that interview, which lasted six hours, it was it was quite transformative. But one of the things that came out of the interview was a, an assignment, essentially, that he gave me, an intergenerational assignment. Um, at this point, it was the beginning of my sort of research. I was still sort of trying to figure out what my questions were. And he essentially said, we, we meaning, you know, um, we who participated in this, what I'm, what's called the, the radical prison movement, a social movement that emerged from the prison. And he was a part of this movement. He says, we have never been able to prove that our analysis is a better analysis. And we need someone to use the tools of academia to see if they can do that. Um, and so it didn't like dawn on me right at that moment, but over time, that sort of assignment and the significance of what he was asking and demanding became clear. And so that's actually what I started to pursue. And that's really the genesis of this project and the genesis of this long-term um, learning experience was transform my consciousness and enabled me to write this book. And ultimately what I realized was that the analysis, the black radical analysis of prisons, of mass incarceration, of criminalization um, is an analysis that, you know, what is unfolding in the U.S. through these institutions of criminal justice is a form of undeclared warfare. And that this was very clear to people who understood themselves to be radical and revolutionary in the 1970s. And it was also extraordinarily clear to people who were on the other side of that struggle, right? So administrators of the sort of repressive apparatus of the state that were dedicated to sort of ensuring that this movement did not flourish, that it in fact died. Um, so that's the overall genesis of the project. And, and uh, we can talk more about method if you want to, but essentially tip of the spear is a term that comes from people who are engaging in this movement, who understood themselves to be the tip of the spear imprisoned black revolutionaries understand themselves to be the tip of the spear this is a military metaphor that refers to uh forces 
that are the first to be deployed in a combat situation. So they're the most vulnerable, but they're also the ones who can penetrate the first line of defenses of an enemy in order to open up more capacity for different kinds of struggle. So there's different ways that that term can be employed. And, you know, I could go on and on about it. I'll, I'll spare folks. Um, but ultimately, it's a term that references this idea of undeclared war. It's a term that comes out of the organic theorization of people who were um, at the front of this war. Um, and it, it grows out of this much longer Black radical intellectual tradition that I'm excavating as part of this project. Wow. Yeah, thank you. Um and I, I would love to get a little more into uh, methodology, and I think that also um, leads well into my next question about how your study of Attica uh, differs from other studies. Right. So the book, one of, you know, one of the terms in the subtitle of the book, which is a term that I kind of you know developed to to, to distinguish this project from other projects, is the Long Attica Revolt. So some of your listeners might not know, many probably do. Attica is a prison in Western New York. Um, it's one of the most famous prisons in the United States, if not the world, because of a massive prison rebellion that erupted um, in Attica uh, between September 9th and September 13th, 1971. Uh, and that rebellion was viciously crushed when the governor at the time, Nelson Rockefeller, with the authorization of uh, President Nixon, uh, uh, authorized a state assault force to to massacre the rebels and, in fact, ten of the host of the prison guards who had taken hostage, killing thirty nine people in one of the most bloodiest single day in one of the bloodiest single day encounters in the U.S. since the Wounded Knee massacre uh, in the in the nineteenth century. Um, so the story of Attica has been told over and over again, and it's been told in a really particular way that focuses on, um, what was, it focuses on the unfolding of the rebellion within the Attica prison. It focuses on the demand that the incarcerated rebels had to reform and transform the brutal conditions in the Attica, it focuses, it, in some ways, it exceptionalizes the violence that was happening in Attica. Um, and this dominant narrative, I, what I'm arguing is that this dominant narrative uh, excises Attica from a much longer Black radical and revolutionary genealogy. Okay, so what I'm arguing is that we need to conceptualize the long Attica revolt. Um so even if we just think about what was happening in New York, and this book is very much focused on New York, although I'm hoping people will understand the global ramifications of what I'm talking about. Attica was, in fact, the culmination of a protracted period of struggle um, that lasted for at least 13 months. I'm actually arguing that it lasted for much longer than that, but the most, uh, the, the most visible an intense form of revolt lasted for 13 months. It traversed multiple prisons in the state, in, in the country, and in fact, um, prisons elsewhere in the world. Um, and the demands were not purely about how to reform or improve 
Attica prison, the demands were about how do we transform society um, such that prisons are no longer necessary to contain, you know, people who are rendered surplus by capital. So in other words, the Long Attica Revolt was an abolitionist revolt. It was an anti-colonial revolt. It was a revolutionary revolt. And part of the reason why I'm arguing that we misremember Attica um, is because it was targeted by a state counterinsurgency that aimed to destroy the movement and which aimed to um, create a uh, misleading narrative about what happened that essentially part of the counterinsurgency was to depoliticize the revolt and to incarcerate our memory of the revolt through what I'm calling, you know, narratives and psychological and cognitive forms of warfare, all of which were deployed within Attica uh, and on the broader population as part of a sort of new uh, as part of a broader response to um, uh, destabilize uh, the very possibility of radical social transformation and social movements within and beyond the United States. So it's a much it puts it in a much broader context of global decolonial struggle and anti-colonial struggle. Wow, yes, thank you. Um and, you know, so you talk about, uh, you know, in terms of your methods, you talk about um, an archive and theory-driven uh, narration, um, an archival war, and your, uh, your project in terms of accountability to um, intellectuals, combatants, and ancestral traditions. Um, could you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. I mean, you know, Attica has been told, the story of Attica has been told over and over again. Um, and part of what has happened is that these narrations rely primarily on the state archive as the sort of evidentiary basis to tell the story. And the state archive is a counterinsurgent archive. It, it, it necessarily truncate certain kinds of narratives that aren't legible to the state and its uh, you know, sort of liberal rationality, right? Um, there are all these other ways of conceptualizing, narrating the revolt and, and, and in different domains, right? There are different domains of revolt and rebellion that can't fully be captured or conceptualized through um, liberal regimes of knowledge, right? The the state primarily understands the rebellion uh, on a, on a physical material level, like when when individual people and groups of people step out of place, uh, when routine established routines break down. That's what they understand to be rebellion. I don't take the state archive as my starting point in my work. I actually take the narratives and conceptualization of incarcerated uh, participants in this rebellion as my starting point. And not only that, actually, my starting point is a subset of the uh, sort of incarcerated population, which are people who understood themselves and were understood by the state to be revolutionary. 
And this is, these are the precise people who have been excised from this narrative as part of this um, sort of broader project to create or to domesticate the rebellion, to create this liberal narrative that the rebellion was all about. People just wanted to be, be treated like human beings and they just wanted, you know, fuller inclusion into U.S. society. It's not that that's all false. Of course, a lot of people wanted that. But the people who were driving this struggle, the, the, people, the people who were responsible for organizing these movements, the key theorists of this, these movements um, had much more capacious demands. And so my uh, archival strategy is to really start with them, to find those of them who are still alive and to talk to them through oral history, and then to go out and to try to see if I can uh, document what they told me using archival methodologies and not only relying on the state archive, but relying on personal archives, relying on um, sources that were not taken seriously by the state. Um, so that's the starting point. Archival war has to do with the fact that most of the sort of black radical archives that I needed, or not most, many of the black radical archives that I needed to tell my story are actually in the possession of the state. Um, they're captured by the state and then they're used in order to create a criminalizing narrative about this rebellion. So part of what I had to do was to go through like old FBI files and, you know, CIA files, prison records, um, to find evidence of resistance in these records, but also to decriminalize this resistance because the state doesn't understand it as resistance. They understand it as crime, as violence, as terrorism, as disorder. Um, and so that's what archival war is, right? So the this, this undeclared war that's being waged it's not happening only on the physical terrain, it's happening on the narrative terrain, it's happening on the epistemic terrain. So I tried to make all these different domains of struggle legible and to be clear methodologically about what I'm doing. Wow. Yeah. Thank you so much for that explanation um, and your use of that term, uh, archival war. Um, and if we can kind of dive into uh, this idea of war, um, which is one of the, the central themes in your book and the idea of a war that has been concealed. Um, and if you could talk a little bit more about that. Sure. Right. So, yeah, that's the, you know, the overarching argument of the book is that prisons are a domain of hidden warfare. And I'm trying to take the prison out of narratives and discourses of criminal justice, which I argue obscure more than they reveal, and to demonstrate the prison as a dynamic, flexible, constantly reforming technology of, of counterinsurgency and counterrevolution that masquerades as an objective, apolitical crime control apparatus. And so I'm thinking specifically about the period of around 1967, um, in which there were massive urban rebellions, black urban rebellions erupting all over the United States. And one of the strategies that 
state actors within sort of the repressive apparatus deployed in order to contain these rebellions was incarceration. They, they were attempting to contain these movements. Now, if you look at how they were thinking about these rebellions, they were thinking about these rebellions, they meaning sort of um, um, people like J. Edgar Hoover, people in the House Internal Security Committee, um, high-level sort of uh, police administrators. They were thinking about these urban rebellions as the precursor to guerrilla warfare. Now, some of the people who were practicing or participating in these rebellions were thinking about them in the same way. So prisons were used as a counterinsurgency strategy to contain this population that was increasingly restive. But this strategy, I argue in the introduction, essentially backfired um, because prisons were not designed. That the administrators of this counterinsurgency underestimated the dynamism of the sort of political ideology, the dynamism of this population that they were trying to contain. So they thought that if they just crammed all of these people into prisons, that that would be enough to contain this movement. But instead it backfired, and you see this emergence of prison rebellions all over the country at, at, at this moment. Now, Attica is the most famous one, but they happened all over the country, in fact. And so at that point, and really Attica, the Attica Rebellion is a pivotal moment in the transformation of prisons nationally and globally, uh, because after Attica, uh, Counterinsurgency strategies that were developed in foreign theaters of war get internalized into the normalized routines of prison management. And so now, uh, prisons, I would argue, are institutionalized forms of counterinsurgency that have developed and evolved and reformed to prevent the possibility of sort of black radical movement, black radical thought. Black radical knowledge, Black radical organization. Um, and so that's where the sort of war analytic comes from. Um, and then also sort of, again, back to method, um, you know, people on both sides of the struggle were talking about war. They were thinking about war. They were applying war strategies and tactics. Um, and they were taking that very seriously. But analytically, people, the previous studies of this sort of period have not taken that seriously. Um, and so part of what I'm trying to do is really to take war seriously, to show that it's not a metaphor, to show that it's actually the operative paradigm um, that is driving the, the, the decisions that are being made during this moment. And so I'm trying to track these sort of decisions and choices to track the strategy on both sides of the struggle, right? So the first half of the book is about the long Attica revolt. The second half of the book is called Prison Pacification, right? And it's all about the coordinated tactics of violence, isolation, sexual terror, propaganda, reform, and what I call white supremacist science and technology that are being used to eliminate this resistance. And again, all of this is unfolding through the paradigm of war. Right. Yes. Um, can you talk a little bit more about the role of sexual violence uh, and masculinity in in this war? Yes. Um, well, it, it, it has. It's, OK, 
there's lots of parts to it. Uh, I'm, I probably won't be able to cover it all. Um, so on the one hand, let's talk about sexual terror. So the first thing is just that sexual violence and terror is a pervasive aspect of war across context. Um, the second thing is that typically when we think about sexual violence in war, we think about um, the rape of women. When we talk about sexual violence, it, you know, and it's actually not even ex often it's just implied that we're talking about the violence that males inflict upon females. That might not be the best way to frame it, but I'll just stick with it for now. Um, but there's, but, but sexual violence, um, male on male sexual violence in war is a pervasive aspect of war. So there's, there's research on that. Okay. That's one thing. Now I'm arguing that the prison is war. Okay. Um, now, you know, the Attica massacre, which is this sort of moment of what actually a jurist, a, a, a judge described what happened as Attica in Attica as uh, as an orgy of brutality, an orgy of brutality. Now I don't know if that judge was intentionally using that word because of the intensely sexualized nature of what was done to the people who rebelled or not, um, because very few people have explicitly theorized. The, the sort of counterinsurgent violence inflicted on the rebels as sexual violence. Um, and there's reasons for that. It has to do with the fact that, you know, the men in general, specifically black men and specifically black male prisoners, I think, you know, there's this tendency to view them as the perpetrators of sexual violence and to view them in ways that suggest that they can't be victimized by this violence. And I think that that's sort of an implicit unspoken way uh, that people have thought about this. So part of what I'm trying to do is really look at this sexual violence that happened in Attica head on, but also to connect this um, moment of extreme sexual violence that happened after the rebellion to the more mundane and normalized ways in which the prison always already functions as a form of sexual violence against men. So the prison, you know, just the, and, and women, obviously, but I'm focusing on men's prisons in the book. So prisons are already organized around a violent sex gender binary that takes that, that, tr that, you know, forces people into these homosocial relations and truncates their access to other kinds of, you know, um, gender and sexual identities and it, it's a, so it's a it's a it's a it's a violently truncated um an artificially truncated uh environment you know the the normalized strip searches and body searches people people in women's prisons have theorized you know body cavity searches as a form of state-sanctioned rape but this is also a normal routine that happens in men, men's prisons as well so these are so these are normalized rituals of sexual violence, and so part of what happens in Attica is 
the response to the rebellion is intensified. And you see the way in which sexual violence becomes a key form of counterinsurgency um, because it's, uh, it's one of the most profound ways that you can dehumanize someone, right? And it's one of the most profound ways that, that, that racism and white supremacy manifest through the weaponization of sexuality. Okay, so that's the part about sexual terror. I'm making another argument about black radical masculinity. I'll try to be a little bit more brief with that one. Essentially, I'm arguing that uh, we have to think in more capacious, capacious ways about the sort of black radical masculinity that's being asserted by these incarcerated men. So much of their struggle is narrated around the question of manhood, around the question of masculinity. You know, when they seized control of Attica prison, they declared, we are men, we are not beasts, and we refuse to be beaten or driven as such. And I think it would be really easy to read that statement as an assertion of sort of their right to inhabit a kind of patriarchal masculinity. And I think a lot of people tend to read those assertions in that way, which is not to say that that's always wrong, right? Um, there's a long history of sort of assertions of black political radical masculinity, you know, Malcolm X, uh, Garvey, uh, David Walker. There's this long history of this. Um, and there's a tendency to read that as inherently anti-feminist or inherently or as an, an uh, inherently conservative assertion of gender ideology. And I think that that would be a mistake in this case. I think that part of what happens, you know, and there's, there's, there's you know, there's a lot that I talk about with this in the book. So, um, so anyway, I try to analyze what they say, but also what they did, their praxis. And if you look at how they treated each other and, and what they were doing in the midst of rebellion, you can uncover and unpack radical, incipient, uh, provisional forms of, you know, what Fanon called radical mutation, which happened on all of these different levels, including gender. And so um, I try to open that up and show the way that these rebels uh, were also gender rebels, you know, in the process of transformation in potentially radical and revolutionary ways. Yes. Thank you so much for that explanation. I think, you know, the frameworks that you're offering around these understandings of sexual violence and how feminist and gender-based violence frameworks have in many ways failed to provide um, enough analysis is very, very important. Um, so, uh, you talked a, a little bit about prison pacification uh, and the science and technology of white supremacy. And I was hoping that you could explain that a little bit more. I mean, the, sh the, the, the shortest, the most concise way I know how to say it is that, you know, these state actors pursued every possible means available to them to figure out how to assert control over uh, radicals, revolutionaries, dissidents, malcontents, people who just would not uh, 
acquiesce, who would not yield, who would not submit to their authority. Um, and and this this included the use of science, the, the use of scientific experiments, various kinds of scientific experiments to figure out why certain people would not acquiesce. And so part of my research, you know, I kind of stumbled into an underexplored fight of CIA MK Ultra experimentation where, you know, uh, anthropologists and sociologists associated with um, the CIA through the human ecology firm and, and at Cornell uh, and at Harvard and at other places uh, were, you know, doing drug experiments, hypnotism experiments, um, all kind of stuff with the goal of just seeing, you know, how they could manipulate certain people with the express purpose of using this knowledge in a generalized way on populations outside of prison walls. They were really explicit about that. They talked about that. And so, I mean, it's hard stuff to do research on because, you know, people work very hard to, to hide their actions and mystify their actions. But I, I was able to um, do a fair amount of, um, I think, exposing of these these methods and of some of the people uh, previously un, unnamed individuals who were part of these struggles. And I wrote a spinoff. Uh, essay in uh, True South called uh, New Docs Link CIA to Medical Torture of Indigenous Children and Black Prisoners, essentially showing that, um, you know, some doctors associated with the Allen Memorial Institute in Canada uh, were definitely experimenting on imprisoned revolutionaries, as I show in my book. But, you know, there's an ongoing struggle led by an indigenous group in um, Quebec called the Mohawk Mothers who are fighting to uh, locate the unmarked graves of their children who were stolen as part of the residential school system in Canada. And there's evidence that some of the same doctors who experimented on black prisoners that I show in my research may have also been experimenting on stolen uh, indigenous children, right? So the use of science, um, you know, in the New York prison system in 1966 became one of the first uh, locations where um, sort of rudimentary, they would be rudimentary now, but at the time, 66, 67, it was cutting edge, the use of computers in criminal justice, so-called criminal justice, as a way to um, facilitate and streamline the collection of intelligence across, you know, prisons, police, court systems, and different municipal systems, right? And so this was presented when it developed as a sort of apolitical efficiency-enhancing tool but then if you look at the people who were responsible for administering this, if you look at what they're saying to each other, they're talking about counterinsurgency. How do we identify revolutionaries? How do we keep revolutionaries away from other uh, 
you know, groups to prevent those groups from being radicalized. And they're talking about the computer as a way to enhance or facilitate that. So, you know, really explicit uses of science and technology as a way to uh, sort of thwart black organizing and to uh, sort of enhance, you know, the capacity of, of, of the state to assert dominance over, you know, subject populations. So that's what I mean by uh, white supremacist science and technology. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. And I, I think that's so, you know, interesting to think about now, especially as technology, both inside and outside of prisons, um, has evolved so much in the ways in which uh, the state is using that now. Um, on ongoing black radical movements, uh, both inside and outside the United States. Um, one thing and that I really uh, that I really loved is uh, that you wrote uh, there's there's no comforting resolution in this book. Um, there's no prescription for future action. Uh, and if I can quote you to seek such a prescription in an academic book is a fool's errand. Um, <laughs> which, which I love because there can be such pressure, I think, for, for books like this to, you know, make some kind of, uh, prescription or resolution. Um, so can you, can you talk a little bit about, um, how, how you think, uh, your book fits now into understandings of, of the different movements that have happened, um, since Attica? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, it's tough. You know, there's a, um, it's interesting. You know, there's a lot of ways I could answer this. You know, I mentioned the, the, the transmission of knowledge, you know, um, part of what the prison is designed to do is to not only incarcerate certain people's bodies but to incarcerate certain forms of knowledge so the prison itself for functions as a kind of a carceral archive um, that's designed to prevent knowledge from circulating outwards and even circulating within the prison itself through a, a sort of a ongoing nested series of compartmentalizations um, and so part of what that has meant and part of what this book tries to do is to decarcerate black radical knowledge that has been sort of intentionally hidden from us for, I, I want to say, at least 30 or 40 years, right? You know, because the book is primarily, the book takes place from 1970 to 1980. I talk a little bit about the present in, in the conclusion, but the, the bulk of the book is about is from 1970 to 1980. And I'm certain that most people who read the book will not know most of the history that I'm telling or the, the forms of analysis and the forms of struggle, the contradictions that these movements had to face. Um, and and it's interesting because it's the, they're the same kinds of questions that people are facing now in places, you know, in struggles around stop cop city around the the narrative struggle or even what what's happening in gaza you know the the way that resistance is being 
criminalized, the ways in which state narratives um, truncate time to make it seem like resistance to oppression is actually the infliction of violence. It's it's just it's incredible. It's incredible um, how predictable it is, and yet how successful it is, and how tragic it is, and so. Uh, but I think a lot of movements at the moment are are increasingly looking to the past, not in order to reproduce what older struggles have 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 done, but as a sort of template for looking at you know for understanding contradictions in previous tactics. And so, um, you know, part of what I'm trying to do is to excavate that, and so that people who are engaged in movements now have this as a kind of resource to think through. Um, the other thing, though, that I wanted to say is that one of the most um, cynical and sinister and seductive responses to the Attica Rebellion is one that I think that we still don't have a full handle on, which is why it's important to understand the counterinsurgency as a, as a, as a strategy that was deployed against the rebellion. And the the most visible response to the rebellion was the violence that the state inflicted on the rebels. But there was also this protracted period of counter-revolutionary reforms that were uh, applied after the rebellion. Now, I can't talk about it for too much because I'll just be rambling on for too long. But but one aspect of I call it the reformist counterinsurgency. I'm trying to help us understand that prison reform, as it emerged in this moment, was primarily about countering rebellion. How do we uh, dole out reforms that appear to appease Black radical demands in ways that enhance our power? And one of those ways was to incorporate incarcerated people and and people who were critical of the prison system into the sort of um, administration of prison reform programs. I guess one example that people might not like to hear, but it, it's probably the most legible to this audience, is, you know, my argument that prison education programs, university-sponsored prison education programs, were part part of the state's counterinsurgency against black revolutionaries in prisons. Because prior to nineteen prior to like nineteen seventy two, there were very few uh educationally uh, I'm sorry, university sponsored prison education programs. But there was lots of education happening in prisons. It was political education and it was run by revolutionaries. I have memos of FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover talking about how furious he was about the extent of the political education happening in prisons and how, you know, radical social movements from the outside and on the inside are spreading their, quote, venomous poison within prison walls, and we need to do something about it. the most effective way that, that they were able to deploy to do something about this, right, was not to use violence to say that you can't teach this, what they would call propaganda in prisons, but instead to bring in university-sponsored education programs into the prison 
that encouraged incarcerated people to want to and believe they could um, become more fully included into the American project. Um, and this is, I think, the root of a lot of this sort of uh, prison programming, let's call it, that happens in prisons today that gets read as sort of uh, social justice-oriented or even abolitionist-oriented work that, in fact, had the net effect of stabilizing the prison system. Um, and so this is sort of the contradiction that we're in now. And part of what I try to do is to demystify the history of this contradiction and to show how it grows out of this period of protracted counterinsurgency. Yes. Thank you for that. And I, I think there are, you know, multiple places in your book for, for us too, as, as academics, um, to think about the role of the university uh, in this um, white supremacist system and project. Um, so if I can, if I can ask you a kind of a final question on your book um, is did Attica end? Right. Right. Um, well, the title, you know, I'm trying to be, you know, ambitious here and, and get us to think capacious in capacious ways. And, um, you know, the doubting narrative is that the Attica rebellion ended when the state crushed the rebellion and, 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 and part, and, and that it began in Attica. Um, I'm arguing that it, that a certain phase of this rebellion culminated in Attica, but it didn't begin there. And I've, I've talked to dozens of people who, after Attica, continue to organize in the name of Attica, right? So the, the, the youth development organization that I worked at, the Prison Moratorium Project, which is the, the thing that sort of started all of this for me, you know, they were founded by Eddie Ellis, who was in Attica. And when I started working at the organization, I was told the narrative that we grow out of Attica. What we're doing grows out of Attica. Uh, and so when I started the book, I was trying to sort of retrace the genealogy of like how, how do organizations grow out of this rebellion? What does that mean? And there are hundreds of different initiatives, countless initiatives that grew out of Attica, some of which still exist inside prisons and outside. And there are people who are still struggling, who are involved in movements, who were mentored by people who were engaged in Attica. Um, and so I think it's only by looking at social phenomena through the very narrow lens of the state that we can say, this is the begin date and this is the end date. Um, and so in the book, you know, the chapter that I wrote on the Attica Rebellion is called Attica Idiot the present tense, the present tense of struggle. Um, and, in, and in the conclusion, I talk about several different movements that I think are continuing uh, the struggle that, that sort of uh, became so visible in Attica, right? Because ultimately Attica wasn't really about, this is the point of the book, 
the Attica Rebellion wasn't really about Attica. It was an expression of a black radical tradition, and it's a tradition that continues to live on. So the answer is no. Um, Attica never ended. It's, it's an ongoing structure of revolt that I think if we look for, we can see all around us in different ways. Yes, Attica is. Thank you so much um, for that explanation. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on now, um, what you've got coming up next? Sure. I mean, I've, I've stumbled into this whole weird world of like MK Ultra and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm, I'm working on that. Not sure if it's going to be another article or two or if it's a book. Uh, because, you know, one thing I've noticed is that you know, histories of sort of CIA experimentation tend not to look at like what was happening to people of color, you know, uh, black people and indigenous people when it comes to MK Ultra specifically. Um, and it's also typically not framed in the political context of counterinsurgency, right? It's usually framed as. Um, you know, within the broader context of the Cold War, which, of course, is a key part of it. But, um, yeah, so I'm thinking about that. And then also um, working on a biography of uh, Duruba bin Wahad, who's a key figure in the book, uh, who was a member of the Black Panther Party and uh, the Black Liberation Army, uh, and uh, who was framed for the attempted murder of two police officers in 1971 and spent uh, 19 years in prison and eventually proved that he was framed. Um, and that was the second big frame up that he was a part of. So he has, and he's just a brilliant organic intellectual and philosopher uh, and has been talking about fascism in really um, sophisticated ways uh, for 40 years and, and, and people are starting to catch up with like, okay, yeah, we need to be thinking about fascism in the U S but, uh, he's one of the people who's been talking about this for a long time. So I'm working on his biography. Um, so those are the two things I've got cooking right now. Amazing. I really look forward, um, to reading both of those. Um, so can you just tell our listeners uh, when your book will be out and where they can find it? Right on. You can uh, get Tip of the Spear, Black Radicalism, Prison Repression, and the Long Attic Revolt on uh, October 31st. Um, you should get it at an independent bookstore like... Um, uh, Bowl Bowl Books is a is a worker owned co-op in DC. Um, Red Emma's in Baltimore um, support independent bookstores. Um, yeah, I hope folks pick it up. I hope you read it. I hope you learn something from it, and I hope it helps us uh, sharpen our analysis. Yes. Well, thank you so much um, for being a guest on the podcast. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Thank you.